My name is Brie Castellini. I used to be a spy. My name is Chris Cherry. I used to wear pants when we recorded these. And I never have. And this is Burn Noticed, a weekly rewatch Sometimes we recorded together. television masterpiece, Burn Notice, about Michael Weston, a spy. I was never wearing pants when we recorded together in the same room, Chris Cherry. They were always painted on. Jesus. <laughs> what do we do in this podcast, Chris? Throughout this podcast, well, we vomit in our mouths a little, is what I we don't. do. And throughout this podcast, we will be rating each episode on whether it is an episode of television, a great episode of television, or a great episode of Burn Notice. If you want to know what complicated calculations go into these ratings, or if you want to know how I painted on pants so well that Chris Cherry couldn't tell that that's what I was doing, listen to our intro episode, or wait until the end, where I'll talk about it in great detail. Also, if you or anyone you know knows Jeffrey Donovan, please get in touch. You can send us questions, suggestions, compliments, and absolutely no criticism of any kind to burnnoticedpodcast at gmail.com or to our Twitter at burnnoticedpod. That's burnnoticed with a D. So, what episode yep. this week? <laughs> Wait, that that's it? No small talk, no pillow talk? We're just going to jump right into it? It's been like two weeks, and it, it, it we're has still been. It's been, it's been a minute. <laughs> I will say... Because um, we were supposed to record last week, and then we pushed it back. And this episode I watched a week ago, did not rewatch. I thought it was fine. And it was funny, too, because I was taking notes, just uh, little quick notes on this episode as I was watching it. And I got to the end of the episode and realized that, like, I'd barely taken any notes. And I was like, all the notes I had taken were, like, worthless notes. And I was like... It's fine. We're, we're recording tomorrow. I'll remember all of this. <laughs> yeah, me too. So how are you? I'm fine. I don't have funny stories because nothing ever happens anymore. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at too. Like I, I have a new family email chain. You have a new the, family? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, it feels like it because I don't talk to my family. You have a secret family that you haven't told often. us about? <laughs> yes, I have a, a second family secret family no so my my mom's side of the family has started up this wild email chain um and like there we've been trying to update it like a couple of times a week each and mine are so boring like the the most exciting thing that's happened is that quinn uh is making a sourdough starter from scratch and so i've been giving updates on like our fermentation progress but that's the only thing interesting because nothing else has changed i'm just at work or recording a podcast about burn notice so it's i i feel like i'm i'm failing them i'm the entertainer of the family but my mom has decided to take up the mantle in my stead because more interesting things are happening to her she's cracking up and (laughs) it's been very amusing to read and listen to Um, But yeah, I feel like I'm really letting them down. So hopefully the now that uh, we're recording this on the eve before season three comes out. So we're we're starting to starting to actually talk to you guys again. So I don't hopefully hopefully the new podcast will give them something to say to them. Exactly. Exactly. The exciting podcast news (laughs) from the exciting world of our podcast celebrity. (laughs) <laughs> about a show that came out 11 years ago when people oh. were still allowed to go outside and touch their faces. Exactly. So this is season three, episode seven. It's called Shot in the Dark. 
It aired July 23rd, 2009, and was written by Ben Watkins, who I'm starting to kind of get a sense of as like a Barrios protege. Less but a better obnoxious. One. Uh, certainly better, but like I feel like I see a lot of Barrios in him, so I'm going to be keeping an eye on that for the future. Uh, and it was directed by Ernest R. Dickerson, who directed The Wire, Dexter, Walking Dead, and 2020's Interrogation, which is apparently a television show that's out right now. Uh, and the only other Burn Notice episode that he ever directed was that baffling one about the Haitian guy whose daughter is in prison and Michael threw two separate people off a building. Uh, so that's that's his resume. Remember Fun that stuff. one? Yeah, I do episode. remember that one. Was that this season? No, that was, I feel like, was forever that? ago. Yeah, but a lot of things feel like forever ago. And also, that's like, true. They just it also may have been a different time that Michael threw someone <laughs> off a building. There's been lots of throwing people off buildings. Who knows? It, it all runs together. Time is meaningless. I think I do remember mostly that that was the episode where the episode, like, picture is, like, that badass one that looks like a fucking Michael Mann movie. Uh, it definitely wasn't season three, because I'm not seeing that. It, may, it must have been, like, late season two. Epi- l- late season two? Yeah. You know, let's talk like about it. Ben Watkins really quick. Sure, yeah. Because I though. think for these two episodes, like, this week of recording... I feel I've gotten the most like in the weeds on IMDb and behind the scenes things. Yeah, you were texting me all night about all sorts of nonsense. Wh- who wrote next week's episode? Because it wasn't I I, I missed it. Rashad Razani. Okay. Rashad Razani, who wrote next week's episode, and who with Ben Watkins, writer of this week's episode, has a pilot in development at a at ABC called Invisible. And yep. I'm and it, to... it's, it has a description that Chris sounds like is about to read that just just yeah. think to yourself, are these the two people for this job? Yeah. Are these the two men who should be doing uh, this show? Invisible, written and executive produced by the Burn Notice duo of Watkins and Rosani. Invisible is described as a sexy, high-octane thriller about an undercover federal agent going through an identity crisis as she struggles to find balance between her roles as a wife and a mother and her calling as a high-risk law enforcement officer. Yeah, I definitely want the men behind Burn Notice to write that show. Exactly. They know what's up. (sighs) What's interesting, but also realizing something that didn't... That doesn't feel obvious yet that will probably become more obvious as we get in to like later seasons of the show is that Watkins and Rizani are the second most common burn notice writers after Nick's. Mm-hmm. Um more than Barrios. Oh, Barrios, Barrios has drop way off le- at some point. I think Barrios he clearly has written some episodes in the last season. I don't think he totally drops off, but they definitely don't go to that well quite as much as the show goes on. And so I think as the show goes on, I feel like Nick's feels like he's found his guys in Rosani and Watkins. And so they I they think... They are referred to as the burn notice duo in that press release. Exactly. Rashad Rosani is... One of the few burn noticed writers who gets to write on The Gifted, his newer show, along with Michael Horowitz. Michael Horowitz is just a very good writer. And so when I look at these two guys, I kind of get the sense that this right here, this is what Nick's wants burn notice to be. For a while, it was 
more of a Nix Barrios thing, but like this kind of slightly more polished, not quite as moralistic, but it's still there. Yeah, like it, it has overtones of moralism, like that just black and white moralism, but definitely better writing on a scene level. Like, so something that I will talk about during my recapping of this episode is that this is an episode that we've seen like three times, but it's the best version of it, in my opinion, so far. I feel like I agree. it was the it was the most it had the most depth and like the most realistic reactions from everyone involved, despite the kid definitely not being a very strong performer. Sorry, 12-year-old. I liked the kid. I didn't. There was like, especially in the cold open, his like extremely dramatic with string music playing in the background breakdown of like the thesis of the episode. Mm. I mean, he's a kid. He's no Jonathan Lipnicki. <laughs> He's no that kid from the room. He is, in fact, a child. He's also, I will say, oh my god, what's your boyfriend from Phantom Mess? Jake Lloyd. He's no Jake Lloyd either. Well, he's also like at least five or six years older than Jake Lloyd. This when is Jake true. Lloyd was, you know, Jake Lloyd. Speaking of all this IMDb stalking that we've been doing, should I read the description of this episode? Sure. It is as follows. As Michael tries to gather intelligence on the agent to the spies who is offering him work, he comes to the aid of a teenage boy with a violent and abusive stepfather who's trying to take custody away from his mother. So cold open begins with Michael and Fiona walking back to the loft where uh, it's like nighttime and all the music is bumping from the club. And Fiona's like, have you ever actually been inside the club? And I immediately assumed like, oh, is this going to be an episode that like involves the club? Like, are they going to have to go in there? But then it's just an excuse for Michael to complain in the spy voiceover that clubs are too loud and busy and spies hate them. Uh, but he does say something. Were people clamoring for the club? And like, why don't you do a club episode? And this is the writers <laughs> being like, no. Well, it's it's sort of the like, don't shit where you eat kind of thing that I thought might have been interesting. Is like, because I know we we had the the last time I think we had any interaction with the club was the other episode where a mother had a child who was annoying and getting in the way. Um, way back when, That's because true. she was like a waitress at the club. So mm-hmm. that's an interesting parallel. But anyways, that's not what it's about. But Michael does say something that I find very funny, which is he's like, well, you can hear the music through the floor of the loft and there's beer in the fridge. So that's basically good enough. And I was like, yes, Michael, I agree with you. That sounds far preferable. So they go through the gates. And the thing are- that people really love about going to clubs is listening to the music. <laughs> and sitting. It's, just, it's an example of Michael Weston being so detached from like normal people and reality. And I... But also, like, hates being around people. And I appreciate that. I mean, I, I feel too. that, Michael Weston. I feel that. I don't want to go to clubs. I don't either. For many of the same reasons that it sounds like spies don't want to go to clubs. So when they go Well, into, you used to be through... a spy. <laughs> I did used to be a spy. And I hated him then and I hate him now. Tactical nightmare. So <laughs> anyways... They go through the gate to get to Michael's loft, and there is a sexy club woman who's there for Michael. And Fiona's like, "Mm, excuse me. And she's there to deliver him some fancy body lotion from a, quote, friend, and she's happy to apply it for him. Fiona has her hackles up a little bit because, you know, sexual competition, and we know that they're dating again, but is mostly just sort of like 
hyperbolically alarmed and amused and there's some excellent facial acting in this scene which I took a screenshot of because she was she she was kind of playing the straight man that Michael plays sometimes when like the other two were being goofy and she like anytime that the sexy lady tried to come on to Michael Fiona was just like excuse me with her face it's like that the the meme guy that that has like four different facial expressions as they zoom in on him you know what I mean the mean guy the meme guy who sort of looks like Dexter yeah meme guy yeah he yeah, does look guy. like Dexter. He does. He does look like Dexter, and th- those were the sort sorts of like facial expressions that Fiona was giving throughout this scene. But yeah, so Michael has some fancy lotion, and it's from Strickler. The next morning, presumably after some very soft and slippery, fragrant sex, Michael returns the bottle to Strickler, who's getting his feet rubbed by, uh, I think, the same bikini babe who tried to deliver the lotion the night before. Uh, Michael's like, "I don't want your money," and Strickler's like. Well, did you even look at the lotion? It's 40% aloe vera. They say it's good for burns. And uh, this is met as is deserved with total silence. So that is a thing that happened. Ha ha ha. Burns. Aloe. Michael also throughout the next. He really should have done finger guns. (laughs) He really should have done finger guns. The problem is, is that he's not trying to be goofy. He's trying to be like cutting. And at least the show is smart enough to realize like, but he's bad at it. Fuck this dude. Uh, I do want to really quickly do a fashion report about Michael Weston's outfit for the next several scenes. It's I hate it. Every time I saw it, I had to like pause and just like give myself a second. It's this it's khaki pants and a polo shirt, which we've seen before. But the polo shirt is white everywhere. It's like white until it hits the shoulders down. It looks like the, and and it's, then it's like two different shades in the middle of the polo shirt of the same khaki of his pants. It looks like his pants pissed upwards and just like got him or like really badly fitting overalls, but shaped like a polo shirt. It's very confusing and I hate it. I hate it so much. And it's the most things going on on a just base Michael Weston outfit I've ever seen and I do not care for it. I like that it's fitted, but I do not care for it. Uh, It kind of looks like he is a caddy for a rich teenage golfer. That's the vibe I'm getting and I hate it. I, it's been a week I don't remember, but that sounds disgusting. How do you feel about Strickler? I don't really have any particular feelings about him. Like he, he's, he's just sort of like a base slimy burn notice guy. Like he doesn't this really. This is do kind anything. of my thing. He's got yeah. He doesn't really do anything no personality. Interesting. But he he's, has. He's always on a boat and giving Michael <laughs> lotion. He's on so, a boat like that Lonely Island song. Yeah. Have you heard of it? Um, do you know about no, Lonely Island Bree? What's it, what's the song called? <laughs> it's it's called and and you'll laugh at this. <laughs> it's called. I'm on a boat. That's the name of the song. What's the song about? He's on a boat. (laughs) It's so funny. You, oh my God, you have to watch the video. (laughs) From 2008. Uh, So I just sent you a picture of the outfit. T-Pain is in it. Wow. What a pull. Did you get the picture? But yeah, no, Strickler seems like nobody. This actor isn't very good. He's not bad, but he has no charisma. He's just, he looks like Michael Weston, but with a bigger nose and like a slightly le- a more angular face. Like he's yeah. so nondescript. He's so indistinct. He is so indistinct. I feel like 
they had nothing for this character. Like, no concept. He's just like... Well, because he was conceived by the people who don't think bad guys are fun. Yeah. I mean, this is true. I don't think it's, like, a disastrously bad performance, but it's bringing nothing to the table. There have been bad guys on this show where there's very little on the table, but the actor brings something. As bad as what's-his-name was from season two, the crazy guy. Victor? Victor, yes. I can't remember names. As bad as, like, Victor was on a page, that actor was fun. Yes, absolutely. Well, but also that performer, well, that 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 was that character was written a little more interestingly because he was a little bit unhinged. Like, Strickler is just a sleazy, like, because, like, what they, they, they keep describing, they love doing this. They love describing him as an agent to the spies. Like, they're, they're, they're obviously very, very obviously making, you know, a connection to, like, agent for the stars, you know, like a sleazy Hollywood agent, but for spies and mercenaries. And they, that's the end of the work that they've done on him. Oh, God, it's so much worse than I thought it was. Yes! Finally! Doesn't it look like his pants just pissed upwards? And just it made more of themselves onto his shirt, what but it's also still this? the Michael. Be- the, it's still the Michael Weston color palette, which is beige. It's like, like dark beige. It's like a tuxedo T-shirt. If you wanted to look like you were wearing the tiniest white jacket, <laughs> like a little cardigan that doesn't go all the way around, so that you can exactly. show off your boobs it's for yeah, that. It's it's honestly offensive. This outfit, I hate it. I. This was worth it. Do you it. see why I do you see why I wait I had to pause the podcast for us to talk about this? Yeah, no, it's like a bar of gold, but like ugly brown gold. Yeah, it's just beige. It just goes the same up the, the middle of his chest. It's like it's like the width of his head. <laughs> I think that's different. I was picturing a different thing. I was picturing something I mean, we like, will certainly be tweeting out this photo just yeah. to I was to picturing something more context. horizontal. Where oh, no, no, like... no. See, that, that, that's what I'm saying is it pissed upwards. The pants yeah. expanded like overalls. Yeah. No, it is kind of like overall. It's just, there's a lot going on with it. Mm-hmm. And also not anything at all, which is the most Michael Weston thing of all time. So we have to move on. Uh, someone designed this. Someone did. And then someone put Jeffrey Donovan in it. They made this man wear it for, like, the next several scenes. Oh, my God. Anyways, they talk about lotion, and we basically have the same scene with Strickler that we had for, like, the last two episodes, which is Strickler is like, hey, work for me. I'll help you get back to the CIA. And Michael's like, I'm not a mercenary. And Strickler's like, "Mm, yeah, but do you want to be in the CIA? And Michael's like, and then Michael leaves. Um, then I see some B-roll of a small airplane and immediately get excited because that means Diego. And it does, it does mean Diego, Michael's new CIA contact. Man, I love that dude. Michael and he into the- is also not nothing on the page, but that actor is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel his irritation. I also do like, and I will give the writers credit for this, that like, this guy seems like a perfectly nice dude that Michael is just fucking with. And it Michael doesn't come off as the good guy. Like, I think that maybe the writers don't realize that as much, but they also don't pull away from the fact that, like, Michael is basically strong arming this very nice guy to do what he wants and, like, low-key blackmailing him. And they just, like, let him do that. And I think that maybe Matt Nix 
thinks that it's just like all fun and games, but there is a level to which they're just allowing their, their good boy man of justice protagonist to like, not be such a good boy about this whole thing. And I appreciated that. It added a little edge to Michael Weston that he has sorely needed. I do think perhaps the thesis of this season, the idea of it is Michael perhaps willing to be a little bit of a worse person to get his job back and like the ethical dilemma of that, but in a very muted way. Yeah. I was gonna say, I think you're giving them a lot of credit. Uh, I just am. I just, I always appreciate moments where the protagonist isn't the good guy. I think that's more interesting, especially when we're stuck with this protagonist for seven years. And for the most part, his ethics are so clean cut. So I appreciated that. Um, so this scene is basically Michael strong arms him into researching Tom Strickler and does so by like calling his boss or something. It's like, Hey, I told everyone I was stopping by and I was giving you this note. So now you have to deal with it. And Diego looks very upset, understandably, because he's being put in an impossible position and Michael doesn't care and skips away. Uh, next scene, Michael's still wearing that fucking outfit. Uh, and I hate it. And he's walking with Fiona. Apparently, they're coming back from grocery shopping to make lunch at Fee's place. Uh, and it's a new apartment. This definitely isn't the same apartment as we saw in Wanted Man, which is, I believe, the last time we saw Fiona's apartment in the show. Uh, Fiona I is so dis- Fiona's discussing Strickler with Michael and does not have the same glimmer of faith in Strickler that Michael does. Because Michael, when he was in the scene with Diego, was kind of like, does, do you think this guy's the real deal? Like, could he get me back in the CIA? Please check for me. Okay, thanks. Bye. And Fiona's like, of course not. This guy's terrible. And if the CIA, who you know from an actual CIA agent, is not interested in you despite knowing what you've been up to, why is this guy who you know is demonstrably worse of a person, how is he going to be the one to get you back in there? And Michael's like, "Mm, someone else is doing research for me. I'm sure it'll be fine. He's like, that guy's very boring. I'm very boring. We're the same. (laughs) You wouldn't understand, Fee. You're interesting. Yes. You don't know what it's like to be boring. Speaking of interesting, uh, Fiona has a great line where she says, when something seems too good to be true, I shoot it just in case, which is just a great boiling down of Fiona's character. And I love her. I love Fiona. This is a, a cup. These this episode and the next episode, I feel like are good Fiona and Sam episodes. I feel like they had a lot of good stuff going See, on. That We'll talk about next week because I kind of hard disagree on that. Interesting. All right. We'll discuss. We'll discuss. Um, So then they notice that somebody has broken into Fiona's apartment. There's like some overturned flower petals and flower petals. (laughs) The flower petals are upside down. Uh, Flower pots have been like fucked up. So, you know, they go in and do like a quiet sweep of the house. And then they come upon a young teenage boy with an earring holding a dismantled gun from Fee's bedroom. And a short foot race ensues. And with swelling string music in the background, the boy tearfully admits that he needed the gun from Fiona because he has to kill his stepdad. End of cold open. It was an extremely long cold open. Like, probably one of the longest we've had. It felt like it went on for 10 minutes. It didn't help that we stopped to talk about uh, no, but like it a took five separate like large paragraphs of recap, even ones that I glazed over. Like he he goes to like four different locations. It's a long cold open because they got to get to that moment. Open. They got to get to the, the kid long, saying, and, and, it, and it spans two days. They got to get to that kid saying, "I got to kill my stepdad." It's Tear- a lot. 
tearfully while there is string music like blasting in the background. It is not a subtle moment. It is not. And so it's going to be one of those episodes. All right. Neat. So after the cold open, Michael is eating a yogurt back at Fiona's place as they sit silently across from their new son, whose name is Joey. There is a custody concern between this kid and his brother and his stepdad and his mom. And that's what the gun is for. Fiona's main concern with this whole plan of this kid is that he didn't think far enough ahead. Where's he going to hide the body? How's he going to explain it? Uh, Michael wisely steers the conversation in a new direction. Uh, and Michael just kind of, I, I brace myself for like another, I was abused too, sort of like ham fisted moment of discovery, but they didn't do that. Uh, and in fact, they don't actually do that from like, Michael doesn't actually say anything the entire episode. Like you basically, you watch him get emotional about this whole thing, but he is the, actually the only character who doesn't remark upon the similarities. And like, usually he is at least part of those conversations. But this episode, like his mom says something, Sam says something. I think Fiona might say something at one point, but Michael Weston never acknowledges his personal like connection to this case or his personal, you know, feelings about it. It's just, we just get to kind of watch him react to it and occasionally say things in um, the spy voiceover to kind of highlight it. But I thought that that was a good choice. I like that Michael is not the one, you know, being like, I was also abused. Sympathy It's very showing, not telling. I... Exactly, which is new for this show. Um, so that's what I was bracing for, but it didn't happen. So good job, Ben Watkins. Um, Barrios Jr. would have absolutely done that. And he's just gently, the most gentle Michael Weston voice I have possibly ever heard, asks for the kid's mom's name so they can see if they can help. Cut to Sam's amazing red convertible, member 38 going on 22, as Sam and Michael drive Still to Carlitos. Still don't know what that means. I assume. Um, I just, now that, now, now that, like, we have established what the place is called and that Fiona and him and Sam go there all the time, I assume anytime they're meeting with a client on their own turf, they're going to Carlitos. So that's what I'm just going to refer to the game. It's, it's Carlitos. That's their place. It's their place. I mean, they're always in different parts of it, so it's kind of not clear if it's the same place or if they're just going to other vaguely Miami-looking bars and grills, but I'm just going to call all of them Carlitos from now on. Carlitos isn't a place. It's an idea. <laughs> it's a lifestyle. Sam is unimpressed by the relative low stakes of this new uh, case that Michael has picked up, which is a nice sort of reflection of Michael usually being like, ugh, this is small beans. I have to do my spy stuff. But this time Sam is like, you have to do spy stuff. And Michael's like, no, we have to help. And then Sam in the moment is like, all right, I get it. Two kids being abused by their dad. I'll help. Of course I'll help. So they, they mentioned that they'd sent in fee first to like be the soft touch like to start out the conversation, but that doesn't go anywhere because the next scene that we're in is the gang talking to the mom and she's starting from the beginning. So I don't know what we gained from knowing that Fiona was there first because it meant nothing and it affected nothing. I don't know if it's just like Fiona's not in this scene. This is why. I guess he, they're, they're trying to, you know, be Michael Horowitz and have like a nice tight logical episode, but they're giving us the wrong details for the wrong reasons. Sometimes you go places separately. It's fine. So this is what we learned about the situation. Eric is the stepfather. 
and he is trying to punish his nearly ex-wife for leaving him by taking their son together, whose name is Danny, does not matter that his name is Danny, and Joey, who is just her son, the mom, like the, from like a first relationship. Uh, he wants full custody, and he's connected as a businessman who's into politics around the courts. It's not really clear what exactly he does, but he's like, well-established in the community in both business and politics. So she's worried that there's nothing anyone can do because of how connected he is. And they're like, is there anything else about this stepfather that we can use to help you? And she's like, oh, well, he also has a brother who's a gangster. And they're like, oh, okay, perfect. <laughs> That's the detail we needed. Uh, we needed the, the brother Quinn, his in- brother. Quinn, his brother. Is Every played, time they said Quinn. Is played by a guy named Nicholas Leah. Or maybe Lee. I've never known how it's pronounced. Um, he was a recurring character, a recurring actor. Uh, Quinn was not the character on the X Files as this other agent, FBI agent, who is usually working for the conspiracy. And every time he comes back on the X Files, his life is just worse. At, at the beginning, he's like, an agent who works for the FBI and by the end he's like someone's toady and he keeps getting abandoned by like aliens and FBI people and double crossed and he's just so like angry and sad and and so I really enjoy seeing him always it's worth acknowledging at this moment that Quinn is the name of my partner who is um not the gangster type and so every time they say Quinn I just was delighted the imagining of my partner as like a hardened gangster guy uh, is extremely fun to me. And so it's I enjoyed hysterical. that element of this episode a lot. Yeah, I will say, very soft boy. He, there's nothing about Quinn that would ever be gangster like. But he no. would look very good in like a pinstripe suit. Ooh, yeah. He'd be like, a good, like, yeah, like noir style gangster. Like, not a, like yeah, like a 2009 gangster. Yeah. Anyways, so we learn during the course of this story about, like, what's going on in the family that um, it was Quinn who encouraged Eric to marry uh, April, the mom, and have a kid with her so that he can seem more respectable. The way that Quinn's business model works is that he is shady, but he kind of gets a pass because his brother is so squeaky clean allegedly from the outside. Uh, but a few months after their their son was born, Eric started to get violent. And then after April called the police a couple of times, he got smarter about how the violent thing went down and stopped leaving marks. But as soon as he turned on the kids, she left. And Fiona and Sam, I think, are the only ones really questioning her at this point, because every time we cut to Michael, he's like clearly very emotional about this whole thing. Like his eyes are red and like he's like, you can tell that he's really trying to hold it together. And it was a really beautiful moment. And I liked that they that they're not trying to like shove it into our heads. Like, hey, remember, Michael was abused like this this felt like the most natural handling of michael's backstory and i really like that and he's basically like it's fine we're gonna take care of this we're gonna take care of this for you so they head to a golf club because all rich bad boys uh work out of golf clubs 
and observe their bad guys. Eric is the abusive yet publicly squeaky clean stepdad played by better off Ted, which was also a bizarre thing about this episode. He does a good job, especially by the end, because he's like supposed to be kind of endearing and awkward. Um, but like, you know, underneath he's terrible. Yeah. Um, but like, and like, yeah, he's better- also he's a business guy. Yeah, and also he's a business guy. But, like, better off Ted, he was always, like, the straight man in, like, a comedy wacky show. And so it was a very weird thing seeing him in this context. Uh, We also meet Quinn, the silent partner in crime, who is very protective of his baby brother so that he can keep his bad guy industries afloat. So naturally, the plan that they come up with is to drive a wedge between them. So that, because, like, basically... April doesn't get the kids as long as Quinn has influence, but Quinn only has influence if he wants to. So if baby brother uh, gets in trouble, then, you know, perhaps the whole house of cards falls apart. Madeline, in I think the only scene in the episode that she appears in, uh, goes and picks up the mom and the kids to stay with her um, because, you know, of course, she has a connection to this, too. She, I think, says for the second time in the episode, they're like, do you think your son can really help us? And she's like, two little boys getting beat around by their dad. Yeah, he's going to take care of this. And it was very understated. They didn't go overboard with it. Madeline was just there with her cigarette, picking the kids up. Fiona is also there because, you know, it's woman time. And asks April for a little bit more information on the brothers. And it turns out that Eric, our abusive stepdad, has a side business that his brother didn't know about. He takes things like luxury cars that get seized at the docks. Apparently part of his business is the docks. They mention it a couple of times, but it is irrelevant. Uh, and he sells the things that get seized at a profit for himself. And his his brother Quinn doesn't know about this. So that might be a good opportunity to start to, like, you know, separate the brothers. Joey helps his new dad, I mean Michael, uh, with turning a cell phone into a listening device in Madeline's garage. Um, it would mean a little bit more if we hadn't seen this exact plot three times already, but like we acknowledged at the beginning, this is definitely the best version of this plot so far, so I'm a little conflicted. I yeah, still don't I think Joey's thought, done a good job. I thought it was but... almost cute. Yeah, it was. Especially because, and and I'll, I'll mention this later on too, like Michael is treating this kid like an actual person and not just saying like, just listen to me and do what I say and everything will be fine. Like he's actually taking the time to explain what he's working on and, you know, acknowledge how the kid is feeling and explain to him like, not just you shouldn't do that, but why you shouldn't do that and what a better alternative might be. Like he's, he's taking the time to parent instead of just, you know, lecturing the kid. So See, that I think was that. this is why I'm more forgiving of this kid. Because, like, I've seen this scene so much in Burn Notice, and it's usually bad. And, like, yeah, I don't believe that this is a kid that is really determined to shoot his stepdad. Like, no, that kid cannot play that at all. But the kid can play, like, kid. Yeah, I guess. Like, I, I'm more endeared by the fact that Michael is doing a good job slash Jeffrey Donovan. So that's that's what I'm in it for. I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's again, it's the best version of this story. I just wish that we had seen this two seasons ago and then not ever again. Like, I, I will allow the Lucy Lawless episode because, like, that idea was really good. They just executed it terribly and treated our girl too bad. Uh, but then they do it, like, two or three other times. And it's like, guys, just once because unless the abusive father plot is going to have an effect on his life outside of any time an abused kid comes to him he gets really emotionally invested that's not narratively interesting anymore 
You know, I like, why are we bringing it up? How is this affecting his real life? Oh, we're just going to do the same plot again? Cool. Um, so we cut to Michael as his new alias, Peter Pete Carson, who walks confidently into, I think, maybe the golf club again, or maybe Eric's office. Uh, it doesn't matter. Somewhere where Eric has an office and is putting, is practicing his putting indoors. And he decks Eric, claiming that a car that he bought illegally from him almost got him killed. Apparently what happened in, ter- in in Michael's story is that he found a note in the car's place one morning saying that he was dead meat. Then his house was torched, which feels like something you can check up on, Eric. Uh, and then he was nearly killed in a drive-by, which is a very elaborate backstory for this <laughs> random guy he's never met before. Uh, so now he wants his money back to stay safe. Uh, He then continues to beat the shit out of Eric as part of his cover, which is convenient as his spy tip notes since he was already mad at this dude. So this is the setup. Basically, they're trying to get this guy to skip town before his custody hearing so that the mom gets the kids by default. They're just trying to scare him into thinking that this thing that he can't go to his brother about is bad enough that he's just got to get out of here. Um, But you know what's interesting about this plot? What? It never works. No, not once. They tried it like five times. I don't think they've ever, not once, got someone to leave town. They They always have, but only at the end of the episode. Usually, like it's they beat them and they're like, "You better get out out of town for a while." Because like you know, they got Brennan to leave town. Like they've they've gotten a number of people to like leave. Like the rival car gang from that one episode that was completely bizarre. I keep saying that one episode that was completely bizarre, like I'm only talking about a single episode, but of course we know that that is false. Um, But like it's it's worked, but it never works first. Like it always works after they've done like eight other things. When they force someone to leave town, the stated goal was not to make them leave town necessarily. Like any time that they are going up to a guy and saying, you have to leave town. That guy usually winds up dead or something. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. I don't know. But yeah, they so they once again, they're trying this. <laughs> they just got... But and like, it, even and it also it's... just seems like a bad idea. Because it doesn't for... really solve the problem. Yeah, and because obviously this guy isn't going to leave town. He's a pillar of the community. <laughs> Right, but it's the they figured out the one thing about him that he can't run to his brother, who usually protects him from stuff like this, can't protect him from. Michael but he has more Chris. invested in this him. town than most people do. Yeah, I think the other thing that they're kind of banking on is that the pettiness with which he's trying to get custody of the kids will not be stronger than his own self-preservation. Like, there, oh no, not the kids. The- he doesn't give a shit about the kids. I mean, literally, like. If he, like, runs away, like, all of his business contacts are there. Like, he makes a living on being an integral part of this town. There are a lot of connections to him, presumably. Right, but connections I think he's on a lot of, dead. like, he's on a lot of, like, city councils and boards and things. No, you're absolutely right. This never works. And also, even if it did work for a little while, like, Quinn would investigate, so the kids are still in danger. Like, especially if his brother just disappeared one day, um, if the guy comes back because they just chased him off, they didn't actually keep him away, like, he can try to get custody then and, you know, claim some other sort of nonsense that his brother... Like, it it just feels like him missing one custody meeting is not going to do the thing. Um, No. So... But they're like, we got to get him out of town. And he just keeps saying it. Mm Mm-hmm. 
No, because they, they, I think they are learning that burn notice episodes need to be a little simpler and more straightforward. So they're like, this is the plan. Get them out of town. Mom gets the kids, bing, bang, boom. Uh, but of course, it's never that simple. So after Michael beats the shit out of that dude, he need, he knows he needs to like push it a little further. Otherwise, Eric's like, I don't know who you are, man. I've never met you. And I'm sorry you're having a problem. But like your problem is not my problem. So they have to make it seem like it's more of his problem. So uh, they do some spy shit. The whole gang does some spy shit where they like uh, they set up the lights in the parking lot to go off at the call of a cell phone and they fuck up his car so he can't like drive it and they they block all of the cell service so basically they wait for eric to come out of his office at night they turn off all the lights to kind of just like unsettle him they fuck up his car so he can't like leave and then when he opens his phone up to like call somebody to come get him his phone's not working and then they do a drive-by in a big van with lots of like floodlights on the front and kind of shoot at him as he runs away to kind of put the fear of God in him. And I really liked this sequence because there was no weird montage cutting. There was no like picture in picture. It was just a series of them doing cool shit to set up like, you know, they're, the thing that they do where it makes it feel like there's a lot more people involved than just the three of them, but they're just being crafty. Uh, and then Fiona gets to shoot at a man as he runs away. And he ran like away the in a very funny and satisfying way. that they have God way. powers. <laughs> like, who I does mean, this guy think it is? <laughs> It's just like they it's one of those moments where they like they set up an environment like, you know, they they, they basically design an environment meant to scare somebody in a very like concentrated way. Uh, but they do it just really effectively. And I liked it. I thought it was a fun montage scene. It's it's theater. It's theater. It's it's danger theater and they do it well. Michael meets with Eric the next morning while he's on a very awkwardly placed call what if, to his lawyer. What if one episode they went to a guy like, you need to get out of town. He's like, yeah, you're right. Thanks, buddy. And he left. And then the less, the next 30 minutes of the episode was just Carlitos. <laughs> or or Michael going to the beach. Remember that episode where he wanted to go to the beach with Fiona and then didn't get to because they were actually bounty hunting? Exactly. <laughs> Finally, Michael and Fiona get to go to the beach. <laughs> yeah, that... That honestly would be a, a twist I wouldn't see coming. Um, so, yeah. So the next morning, Michael goes and meets with Eric to explain more about why he's very mad at him for selling him this bad car. And uh, Eric is on the phone when Michael gets there, super conveniently, uh, talking to his lawyer about how that bitch can get the kids one weekend a year. He doesn't care. Just get it done. Um, so, hey, remember, this guy's a piece of shit. I'm glad we remembered that because I had forgotten. Unfortunately, Eric wants to work with Peter, not run, which is an oak. I liked the twist. Like, I, I wasn't really thinking about all the other episodes that have been, hey, get out of town. No. But you're absolutely right now that you've pointed that out. Um, but I, I do like that, like, he has – the the guy that beat the shit out of him the day before is his new ally. Like, I like that the their, their bad guy is like, no, 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 no. We have to work together now. Let's do this. So they have to pivot their plans and now they'll have to make him regret wanting to know who's allegedly coming after him. So if he wants to know more information, well, they'll give it to him, but he's not going to like it. Um, in the most hilarious shot I've ever seen in Burn Notice, which is saying a lot because there are some hysterical camera moves in this show. I don't think on purpose. Uh, there, uh, The camera pans up and zooms in at the same time on Michael doing his angry Michael face, standing perfectly straight in a construction hat boosted up by, like, machinery. It's... Do you remember this shot, Chris? Because it lasts, I like, don't. 10 seconds. 
And uh, I here, I'm going to send you another email of because I took a screenshot because it's so funny. Um, but it's like it's this very weird shot where it starts on just some fence and then it pans up and zooms in and it just zooms in on Michael Weston not moving, standing perfectly still and straight, like waiting for Diego to turn his back or something so he can fuck with the phone lines. And he's wearing like his construction get up and he's just, he looks so furious and so serious. And I don't know. It just, it was such a weird transition. He's just standing there, not moving. And I didn't, I don't know. I, it just, it really struck me. It just really struck me. Uh, but the reason Again, that he's, this episode was so long ago in quarantine time. <laughs> this is approximately seven years personally. ago in quarantine time. Uh, every day is a year. So the, what he's doing is he's pretending to be from the phone company so he can tap Diego's phone. Not necessarily so he can actually hear anything, but he explains in a spy tip that I'm sure we'll read later on that he's just trying to get a sense of like who he's calling or what kinds of encryption he's using to block things. I don't know. He's going to learn something from this phone tap, but it's not necessarily getting the full like phone call records. Basically, yeah. To know if he's talking to really high up people or just like, low-level people Mm -hmm. he wants to know how good the information he's about to get out of him is um then as he's finishing up here eric calls in a panic he's seen the same blue car drive by his office three times so they're gonna come get him now um michael realizes during the phone call that this is his mom's car and when he calls home it turns out that after eric called the mom lashing out at her because he's like freaked out and angry joey had stolen the car along with a shotgun fucking kids always trying to mess up michael's plan to save them from a violent situation man you just can't catch a break. So Michael has to uh, hard pivot from his phone gig, not in character for his like his little soul and luxury car character, Peter, uh, but luckily manages to get to Joey just in time and talks him down from attempted murder, pleading with him for more time to do his less violent, probably not that much less violent plan. Michael instructs him to peel rubber getting away in the car and then meet him on 5th. And it's important to point out at this point that Michael is asking the kid to, like, drive away in the car uh, as part of, like, his cover. But he's asking him to do it really quickly and dangerously. And this child is 13 years old. And it feels just really irresponsible and reckless, not only to continue to let the 13-year-old drive, but also to instruct him to drive in a unsafe way, even for someone who knows what they're doing. So, I mean, the tr- And the episode acknowledges this. It does, but also it's such a bad idea, and I don't, I don't appreciate Michael Weston putting this child who has just stolen a shot, a gun for the second time, trying to kill a man. I think maybe this child should not be behind the wheel of a car, especially I going mean, extremely fast. I the child fast. got there, and it wasn't like Eric was like, "Hey, there's this blue car that's been following me." Also, it drives really erratically. Also, <laughs> it stopped at McDonald's like three times. So, Chris, what you're saying is that if the 13-year-old is good at driving, we should continue to let him drive? I'm saying... Especially in more unsafe ways. I'm saying if the 13-year-old is good enough at driving that they haven't gotten caught yet, and they really need a cathartic release and to feel like maybe they're helping bring down their abusive stepdad by doing something so they can feel like part of it and not just sitting there doing nothing... Maybe let the kid peel out. I feel like maybe there was a b- better way to do it, but 
yeah, I guess when you're a spy in the field, you got to improvise, whatever. So Michael kind of pops up. Um, I mean, like, I'm not letting 13-year-olds drive. Let's be very clear. But I, <laughs> I got why what, it happened. And that's the year. one thing standing in the way from you, Chris Cherry, being an excellent spy. If you just let 13-year-olds drive, you'd be unstoppable. You'd be the CIA's strongest asset, but just not enough. Um, so Michael briefly goes over to like Eric and is like, oh man, that was definitely the guy. Um, what do you want to do? And Eric's like, we have to get rid of this person. Whoever is after us, we got to just kill him. We, whatever the cost. And Michael's like, okay. And luckily Eric doesn't notice that Michael Weston is still wearing half of his like phone service utility outfit, uh, because he didn't have time to change. So cool. Michael then goes and meets up with his son. He's I like, mean, Joey. At, least just, at least you're not wearing that polo. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. I don't think he met him in the polo, but fuck that polo was bad. I hate that outfit. We should start doing a word had spread. It's the talk of Miami. <laughs> so Michael goes and meets up with Joey uh, where he has safely parked the car. Uh, pretty good parking job on the side of the road for a 13-year-old, so I guess maybe he should be trusted. And Michael lets him listen in on the bug that Michael planted back at the beginning of the episode so that he can kind of see what Michael's plan is so that maybe he doesn't try to steal a gun again. Quinn is mad because someone important saw Eric running around the parking lot with a gun when he was all freaked out. The tension is rising between them. Eric isn't happy that his squeaky clean brother isn't so squeaky at the moment. And Joey is impressed that Michael's plan is working and promises to keep his own nose clean. It's almost like tell, uh, it's almost like if someone's being an issue on a job, you should just give them more information and talk to them like a person instead of just insisting vaguely that you're right. Crazy how that works. I really did like this scene because Michael didn't just like yell at him for taking the gun and say like, you have to let me do my job. He's like, let me show you what my job is. Let me show you what I'm doing, what I've already done so that you can see that like, I'm not just running around fooling around. We are doing actual work and this is going to happen. We are going to keep you safe. And like, now maybe he should have been doing this. On this hard hat again. Yeah, exactly. Now that Eric has said like, Cost is not a problem. I want to kill this motherfucker who's trying to kill us. Uh, Michael slash Peter is like, all right, I'll, I'll, I know some people. So they meet up underneath a bridge or something in a very, very dark scene where you can see almost no features of anyone involved. And Fiona and Sam pretend to be like the cleanup crew who's going to go figure out who's after them and take care of it. Uh, they promise that Eric can be there whenever they find whoever's threatening them so he can see, you know, th that it's been taken care of. They have a lot of money now, like $40,000 or something, and uh, are going to take care of it. The gang then has a little crafting session where they make fake blood to fake some gunshot wounds, and then they call Eric that they found the guy. So the next day, with themselves all kind of padded up, ready for war, so they meet Eric in a, a neighborhood away from where he usually hangs out, I guess. It doesn't, it's not really stated what neighborhood they're in. And they're outside of like a kind of decrepit looking pawn shop. Fiona and Sam claim that they have found the guy who's been threatening them. His name is Chuck Finley, which I stupidly was not expecting because it's the first time he's not attached to Sam as a character. Sam is a character referring to someone else named Chuck Finley. And he's very dangerous, but it's just him and two goons. So they're going to go into the alleyway and take him out. Yeah, I forget I if we talked about this, but is there now a legend of Chuck Finley in Miami? 
we definitely have talked about it. And like, that was, that was, I think something that, that, that came up where we were like, how has it not become that? Because not everyone that they have told about Chuck Finley has been killed. Like a lot of them are in jail. Some of them have run off, you know, have successfully been thrown out of town. And yeah, I, I hope that in a later season episode, like the legend of uh, the ballad of Chuck Finley comes back to haunt them. I really do too. And I hope it's called the ballad of Chuck Finley. Ballad of Chuck so Finley or bust. Uh, so they, they go into the alleyway to and and Sam and fear like, all right, you guys wait here. We'll go into the pawn shop, take care of it. And then you can come in and like inspect our work. As Sam and Fiona walk out to like approach the building, Michael sets off the charges and they both dramatically die in such a beautiful collapse. Sam falls into a bunch of garbage really dramatically. I have a lot of screenshots from this. So you you better believe that over the course of the next week, Twitter's going to be lit up like these motherfuckers were with screenshots of this scene because it was incredible. Uh, Here's my problem with this plan. Uh-huh. At no point have we actually established that these people are good at their jobs. Yeah, and they have no, like, they, well, they, we get a little bit. In the scene where they're, like, at the cafe across from the pawn shop, like, Sam walks them through their investigation. Like, there's only one manufacturer in Italy that this could have come from, and he has one contact here, and they were based out of this neighborhood. Like, he, he has a little, like, mini, you know, yeah, but like the thing is, in order for this plan to work, Eric has to think that these guys are so good that if the bad guys killed them, then he there's nothing he can do because these are the best. But they seem really stupid. They literally just walk into an alleyway and get shot. They seem really casual about it. They're like, yeah, let's go do this. They seem like a couple of fucking idiots just like, yeah, we're going to go kill some people. I mean, they found him in, like, less than a day. I think what they're banking on is that this guy just really wants this to be over with because, like, his custody meeting is coming up and, like, his brother is starting to put pressure on him. So he's like, I just need the situation to be over. And then when he is physically there watching three people get, like, fucking ripped apart in front of him, he is going to just panic. Like, they're, I think they're they're trying to just set him up for, like, really emotional moments to push him over the edge. What they're trying I mean, to do is just... Because they, they just need him to leave for, like, three days. I'm not saying this is a good plan, but I think that what this plan backs on is, like, the spectacle of it, you know? Yeah, but it it just feels like, again, if he was that likely to leave because of the emotions of it, he would have done it, like, days ago. Yeah, like, but no one's died yet. Like, the, the fear of death has come to him, but, that like, to seal the deal, <laughs> three people are shot in front of it him. It just seems like that these people are bad at their jobs they've done they were just they just walked into the hallway they've done it seems like they've done very little recon they yeah, walk I into mean, a trap listen, if this was if brennan was the bad guy of the week he wouldn't have fallen for this but i we've kind of gotten the sense over the course of this episode that eric's a little bit of a ding dong he's just sort of a violent idiot and he's definitely not the brains of the operation this is true like you know he's, i just he's wanted hothead. them to like demonstrate a little more professionalism. You want you want them to impress you a little bit. Well, yeah, because it has to mean something when they die. It has to be earned. It's theater. Yeah, I think it would have been better. The other the thing that fucked me up about this scene was that like they're being shot from the alleyway, but the whole plan was they were going into a building from the alleyway. Where is the shooter? 
why is the shooter outside? Like, it, I think it would have been better, especially since we later established that the pawn shop is empty, that they have, like, complete control over the location. If they had partially gone in, um, they heard the shots, Michael and Eric go and investigate, like, ah, great, it's over. Like, we can go check it. But then they see, like, Fiona's dead body at the door. Michael gets shot at from, quote unquote, from the building. And then Eric runs off. I feel like that would have been more effective because at least would have been more tangibly connected to the place that they claim all the people are from. And then Eric can be like, even if these guys are idiots, uh, you know, they, they've they seen me now. Or like, we, you know, they've just killed yeah. all of these people and I got to get out of here. The problem is, for me, the the alleyway scene wasn't tangibly connected enough to the story that they've told Eric about where the bad guys are. Yeah, no, they just walked out and got shot. Mm-hmm. And, like, it would be one thing if they were trapped in a small room and, like, there was more of them than they thought. Um, you know, and they could have yelled something to that effect. But, um, yeah, it was just sort of random out in the open. And also, all of the roofs are pretty low, so he probably could have seen the shooter had there been one. At, based on like the topography of where we were at for this scene. Yeah, how bad are they at scouting that they haven't found these well, shooters? How how bad is the the alleged only survivor <laughs> for not being able to tell where the shooting is coming from? Exactly. The whole thing is crazy, but I did like the scene because it was so over dramatic and funny. And then it like, is the- very over dramatic and funny. It's and I liked that. You know what? I I appreciated that. Like, if the bad guys aren't having any fun this episode, at least the good guys are. So yeah, Sam. Uh, they're like, all right, the thing is over. It's everything's gonna be fine. So Sam is listening in on the bug uh, as like Eric panics and puts some money together so he can skip town like they've been waiting for him to do. But unfortunately, Quinn intercepts and walks in and he's like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Everyone is saying that you're being really erratic and it looks like you're about to skip town. You can't skip town. You know that. What are you doing? And finally, Eric like lets the cat out of the bag and is like, Quinn, this is what's been going on. They're going to kill me. And he's like, who's going to kill you? And he's like, three people are dead. And he's like, that sounds fake, but let's go check it out. And so Sam's like, shit, we have half an hour. We got to f- improvise something because Quinn's going to blow this whole operation. So th- in like apparently half an hour, they turn the pawn shop into a church and cover up all the fake blood in the alleyway and whatnot, like, you know, completely lose track of the, lose track, uh, completely, like, clean the slate of what had occurred there earlier on. And uh, when, uh, what are the names? When Quinn and Eric get to the spot, they see there's no blood or bodies, and they're like, well, they must have, they must have taken them. And then they go to the pawn shop, but the pawn shop now has, like, a big neon cross in front of it, and Michael Weston is inside, wearing a rosary and one of those little priest white things. And he looks like a priest and he's like, Oh, hello, Eric. It's been, it's so nice to see you again. (laughs) And basically the story that they construct is now, now that they can't get Eric to just leave, they're going to set Eric up as the crazy guy. So they're like, Michael's like, this guy has been coming to me for spiritual guidance. I found him raving mad on the street a couple of days ago, and we've been working through it. You're his brother Quinn, right? Oh, he's so lucky to have a brother like you. And Sam is like stationed at a fruit stand nearby uh, selling produce. Fiona is shopping, but they're all kind of placed where Eric would be like, that, she was involved. I just watched that man die. But like, they're obviously not dead. And it's just like all to construct like an alternate reality to make Eric look crazy so that nobody, you know, believes him. He looks like he's pointing to strangers on the street and being like, they're in the conspiracy. 
And it's honestly, I thought it was good. I liked the the, I the improvisation. This. I thought this scene was really well done. I like I liked getting to watch them put it hell. together. It was really funny. And at the very end, like Eric is like losing his shit, and he's like looking out. He's like, I can't believe you're lying. And Michael Weston kind of smiled, and then he just winks, and it goes, He winked at me. The guy winked at me, and it was just oh man, start to finish, great sequence. I really loved it. It is great. Um, I want to know where they got all of that stuff. I know. Well, I mean, they they got a podium and a bunch of chairs. That seemed straightforward enough. We know that they got some of Michael's like priest outfit from the guy who was previously working the fruit stand. Uh, so we know where that came from. I'm sure Fiona just like has shopping bags. But yeah, the neon cross and the other cross. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think that they're they're in like a. It looks like they're in like a, a Cuban neighborhood. Um, so maybe they just kind of scraped it together from other people in the area. Yeah. Because, like, we see them, you know, ha- asking the locals for help. Uh, so maybe they, they there's, like, a couple of religious people in the area. They're like, yeah, you can borrow our neon There's a couple of people who are, like, very religious but also love pranks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like Cubans. Cubans love a good prank, but they also love Jesus. Just like the just Irish like, hate come money on. It's like punked. <laughs> It's punked, but you know, for justice. Ashton Kutcher set this up. Punked for justice. That's 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 what we're doing here today. Uh, but yeah, it was an excellent scene. I really enjoyed it. Um, we have a little wrap up with the mom and kids. There's a small sequence where um, Michael is like has his uh, arms crossed, leaning against the charger, and we watch Joey try to like mimic the stance, and then they have a little father son moment. And Joey's like, is eating yogurt the secret to, like, growing up good? And Michael's like, well, it couldn't hurt, which I enjoyed. And, you know, he kind of, like, gets the kid on with the rest of his life saying, like, there's hope for you. Just, like, you know, take care of your mom, but maybe don't be so violent and everything's going to be fine. Very sweet moment, blah, blah, blah. Michael goes to retrieve his the phone bugging that he did on Diego's whole thing. Remember, there was a whole plot with Diego. It's been like 20 minutes since we've seen him. That was not very well weaved into this episode. And I also think that next episode suffers from that as well, where there's like there's two plots happening, but one is pretty much entirely ignored for them, like most of the episode, yeah. which I is the least strong version of the weaving of plots. We, You and I consistently like episodes better where like the two plots that are happening in Michael's real day-to-day life and his spy life are a lot more intertangled. And I feel like these two episodes really didn't do a good job of that. Um, but anyways, we go back to the, the B plot. And Diego is like holding him at gunpoint as he's breaking back into his phone bug system to retrieve the information. And it's like, give that to me or I will call the government. Like, you cannot be phone tapping me. And Michael's like, I'm sorry. What did you find out? And he's like, I didn't find out shit for you. I just know that as soon as I dropped his name and as soon as you dropped his name at me, I started getting calls from everybody. And so the sort of premise of this scene is that even though Diego is not giving him any information, who had been calling him as a result of te- telling everyone Strickler's name was the information Michael needed. He now has confirmed that Strickler is like very well connected. So even if he's not like a good guy, he definitely knows a lot of good guys. So, you know, this is probably his best bet. So Michael goes and meets up with Strickler on his boat one last time. Strickler's like, cool. I know that you've done some looking up on me. So here's the deal. 
I help you get back into the CIA if you do some jobs for me. I've actually got one coming up that you would be perfect for. And Michael's like, what's the job? And he's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. You don't get any information. Just do the thing. I promise it won't hurt your sensibilities. It's it's time to start working together. And Michael's like, okay. And then that's the end of the episode. And that's a burn notice. And that's a burn notice. He, I hope he takes back his aloe because he's going to need it for all that burn. God damn <laughs> All I right. can't believe that was a joke tips. that happened. Yeah, let's talk about spy tips. Fuck this. Uh, spy tips. Number one, spies hate drop-in visits. Any questionable contact has to be reported to superiors, a process that involves hours of paperwork and uncomfortable questions. If you're a questionable contact, that gives you some leverage. If you know where a spy operates, even a guy running a lowly import-export covers... Uh, even a guy running a lowly import-export cover business, you can make someone's life miserable. This is sort of on the edge, but I like it's it's worth knowing if you need to like piss off a spy, like this is possibly a way to do it. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. Yeah. I like any insight into like the practical, like day to day operations of the CIA. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Number two, 99% of controlling someone's behavior is controlling their environment. All the conversations in the world won't have the same impact as turning off the right light at the right time. If you want to kill a streetlight without the mess and inconvenience of breaking into the pole with a cutting torch, you'll need access to the circuit breaker. Connect lines from the breakers to an exposed cell phone wire, and with a quick call, you can short the circuits. A similar trick can be used to temporarily disable a car. It doesn't take much to trip a few electronic safety mechanisms and make a vehicle impossible to start. If you want to make sure you're the only one making calls, a $100 cell phone jammer will block all signals in a one block radius it's a chock full tip that's a lot of stuff some of it we've seen before but we definitely haven't seen the the street light thing before mm-hmm. and and I, I i actually would have accepted just like the controlling their environment tip like i like the concept of that is like talking to someone is all well and good but if you can control their environment and do like you know crime theater that'll be a lot more convincing and i, I like the I... way that that's thought of I do remember very early on, like in season, early season one, there was an episode of Burn Notice where I think they gave like a similar tip about stopping a car with a cell phone. And I remember saying, that's super useful, but now they have this problem of why aren't they doing that all the time? We're probably never going to see that again. And hey, they did it again. Number three. When you want to create fear, it's best to keep it simple. The same things people are afraid of as kids scare them when they're adults. Fear of the dark, for example. Fear of being alone. And above all, fear of the unknown. This what is were you a scared borderline. of as a kid? Yeah, this is... This is... <laughs> what was I scared of as a kid? Yeah, what were you scared of as a child? I mean, I definitely had a period where I was scared of the dark, but it was it was less the dark. It was more that, like, I have a very overactive imagination. And so if there was any amount of light in my room and it cast a shadow or a weird shape, like I would get very worked up imagining what that shape could be. I was constantly terrified that someone had broken into the house and was going to kill me. What if you were in pitch black though? Pitch black, I would have liked better. And even as an adult, like I try to really, like if I'm going to sleep, it's either in full light or full dark. This in-between nonsense, I cannot have. No, pitch black scares the shit out of me. Remember the first time I ever actually slept in like pitch black where I could, where there was no difference between closing my eyes and opening them. And that was terrifying to me. 
See, I, I'm more comforted by that because then there's nothing for me to ping off of. Like there's nothing for me to extrapolate off of to freak myself out. I can see nothing. I feel like if I, I slept in a separate sensory deprivation tube, it would be the best possible version. A sensory deprivation egg, if you will. <laughs> Alas, like, no. See, my fear, I guess it's the fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would say that, too. But like, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I'm not like I know enough to know something is there. It's like the best horror movies are the ones that don't show you the monster. They're the ones where it's like you see just enough of it, like or hear just enough of it to freak you out. But you don't actually have a complete picture because once you see the complete picture, it's a lot easier to like, you know, look at it from all angles and be like, this isn't actually that scary. But like not knowing exactly what it is that you're hiding from, that's the scariest possible thing. You know, there's something there. You know, you can see the shadow or the shape, but you don't know exactly what it is. I think part of it is that if there's a weird shadow or something, I can at least, like, maybe get up and look around and inspect it more closely. But if you're trying to to sleep, you don't want to get up and inspect it. You just want to look up, see But I can. I have that option. Whereas if it's pitch black, then who knows? Anything could be happening. There's literally no way to know. Anyway, this tip is, I don't, I don't think it's anything. I don't know. I think it's something. I think that it's interesting, like, when you're trying to freak someone out, you don't have to go complicated. Just go primal. You know, what are the things that people were afraid of when they didn't know a lot of information? Just recreate that. No matter how old somebody is, those primal evolutionary fears are still going to be the most effective. Fucking clowns. Exactly. Okay, you've convinced me. You can stay. Thank you. I wrote it better than they did, but, you know, all writing is rewriting. Anyways, number four. With today's powerful encryption, it's usually a waste of time to decipher coded communication. Tap the data stream of even a low-level spy, and you're going to get incomprehensible garbage. Just because it's garbage doesn't mean it's worthless, though. A network analyzer can tell you how much information someone's accessing and how encoded it is. If someone starts using heavy-duty crypto and changing their security protocol, you know you've touched a nerve. And sometimes that's enough to tell you what you need to know. I thought this was interesting. Me too. I thought that was clever. Like, hey, you don't need to actually have to know what information that they're seeking to get information about said information. And that might be just as useful to you. Neat. Number five, if you want the appearance of a gunshot wound without actually dying, you need to create a high-powered burst of blood with a squib, perhaps. A bottle cap packed with a bit of plastic explosive does the trick nicely. Rig a few remote charges to create the sound of a fire alarm, and you've got everything you need. This is good. This is, here's the thing about this tip. I think in general, this, they don't like to go into too much detail about explosives for good reason. Mm -hmm. Because they don't want you to do that at home. I think this is a situation in which, because you're already saying, you just put a bottle cap and a plastic explosive and then strap it to you. It's fine. There's something like, I almost want to know a little bit more, like, how much <laughs> so that you don't explosive. blow yourself up. Yeah, I, exactly. I had that thought too. Like, oh, okay, so we're putting bombs on ourselves now. All right. Yeah, I imagine fine. it's like, like you know how if there's like fireworks and then there's um those little like kernel fireworks that are just like a little bit of powder inside um 
some yeah. like muslin that you throw at the ground. That's what I'm imagining, like poppers or something. Like that's what I'm imagining they're using for the. Well, it has to be a little more than that because like it's got to break through your shirt and shoot liquid in there. Right, but like the comparison of you know a, a bomb versus a small explosion no, yeah, in my course. mind is like firework to little poppers. Is that what they're called? I mean, poppers? yeah, I mean that's what's in squibs too. It's just like. But yeah, you're right. We maybe need a little bit more details to not blow our nipples off. It's fine though. It can stay, but like. Yeah. I wish I knew yeah. a little bit more about their preferred... Squid-making technique? Re- no, recipe for the fake blood. Because oh, their yeah. blood did look excellent. It looked better than the blood that we used in brains. It's almost as if, like, these people have access to, like, Hollywood special effects. Mm, almost. But just, I mean, just, like, the consistency of the blood seemed really good. It just looked like Horan Sarp or something. Well, I would It looks very low attack. Anyways, number six. When a plan goes wrong, you have two basic options. The first is to accept failure and abort the mission. That works best when you have the resources and time to remove personnel from the field. When you don't have resources or time, you're left with option two. Get back in there and salvage the situation any way you can. There's a long tradition in spycraft of making enemy assets appear unreliable. Make an operative look like a traitor, for example, and if you're lucky, your enemies take him out for you. Better than making an enemy looking disloyal is making him look insane. It takes some doing, but when you pull it off, it's more devastating than a bullet. This is like two tips. Yeah, kind of. It was. It's a long one, but it was considered one in the wiki. Yeah. No, yeah, like, I, it's like I, it's, it's all a, one okay speech. To, yeah. When it's broken up into like you have two options, so like they both yeah. do kind of have to be in the same one. So I'll acknowledge that we've had a similar thing like this before, like. It, usually this advice is given earlier on like and their whole plan is to make a bad guy seem unreliable to like his you know yeah. it, like they, they, they there's a long-running tradition in burn notice of making lackeys look like traitors to their bosses to like turn them all on each other um but i liked the twist of this one of being like but sometimes even more effective than disloyalty is insanity so if you can just convince everyone that this person is crazy which you know given the way that they usually set up missions is not very hard like they just have to you know bald face lie to everyone who hasn't met them yet that might be just as effective i'll agree with it especially since again i loved that scene it was a great scene excellent scene i love michael weston winking in his little priest getup just truly excellent. All right, cool. Well, that's six spy tips. So uh, moving on to rating this episode, were there at least five practical spy tips? There, in fact, were. There were six. So that's a pass. Did they solve the weekly case with spycraft over violence? Yeah. Yeah, that was actually kind of the theme of the episode. Exactly. Violence is bad, kids. (laughs) We just, yeah, just like torture is bad. We use enhanced interrogation. It's Violent adjacent. Was there a distinct alias? Do you consider Peter Carson a distinct alias? Eh. I kind of don't. Like, just, he had a name and he had a perspective, but, like, we don't, he didn't have a backstory. He didn't have a swagger. He didn't really have a voice. He just had, like, a slightly deeper than Michael Weston voice. Yeah, and it wasn't, like, fun. I did yeah, not he enjoy Yeah, he didn't Peter have any Carson. distinguishing features. Although, actually, hang on. Would you count the priest at the end to be a distinct alias? Who was counseling this crazed man back to health? I would not. Aw. He was more distinct than the other guy. No, because the priest doesn't have a name. That's fair. The priest I mean, it's, only it's like has something because we know he's like, not really oh. a priest. 
Yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Just because there was a named alias does not mean that there was anything interesting about him. There was no characterization, which, like, not he didn't even have, like, a fun fedora, you know? Like, no, I just need not. a little bit of something. Be creative with it, guys. Uh, but fine. Yep, yeah, that doesn't pass. So I mean, they finally, were plenty creative this episode anyway, so it's fine. Yeah, exactly. They had, they had other stuff. Uh, so were Fiona and Sam used well? I think so. I think so. I think they had fun. Yeah, yeah, it was I, a fun episode. Fiona got to blow stuff up. She got to, like, be a little erratic and try to go violent when she didn't need to. They got to die horribly. They got to all got to die horribly and then argue over who died horribly best. Yeah, yeah no, I, it's fun. It's good shit. Yeah, cool. So uh, that's three out of four, and that is officially a great episode of Burn Notice. But more importantly, was it a great episode of television? I had fun with it. I don't think I had fun with great. it. I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's great either. I think it's definitely like, I think we are fully out of the weeds in terms of season one bad episodes. So like anytime an episode is just an episode of television, it's not as much of a letdown as it used to be. Um, but I definitely agree. I don't think that it rises to the occasion of Tommy adopting a injured greyhound or bad breaks, no. God forbid. No, it's, yeah, like, because the kid doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, if this had been, I I also just feel like I would have resented this episode a lot less if it had happened much earlier. Because this this is an episode that really didn't have to happen this season. You know, nothing about the, the central, you know, plot arc had to be season three. So I feel like if they had done this earlier on and gone a little bit less ham-fisted about Michael's backstory, I feel like I would have been a lot more charitable towards it. But at this point, he we've had like five or six episodes of Michael Weston like going dad mode because he was abused and, you know, everyone like tiptoeing around him because they're like, oh, this is Michael's pet project. And, and nothing, yeah, and we didn't like learn anything ending. new. Yeah, it had like, definitely, there a lot was a lot of, the of really great just kind of, eh. Yeah, exactly. Like they're Eric's on a scene memor- level, they were memorable. Nope. Quinn's not super memorable. Quinn doesn't do anything except for occasionally show up and say, why are you being weird? <laughs> yeah. Like that's, that's nothing. Um, but yeah, like I, I just, I also feel like on the macro level, we don't learn anything new about Michael Weston or his relationship with his past or with his father or with his future. Like, you know, we're just repeating the same, we're retreading the same ground. Michael Weston was abused and is therefore very sensitive to abused kids. It's like, okay, cool. What else? We've seen this eight times. What are you telling us that's new? How is this moving him forward? Yeah, no, there's no sense of like a point to this. It's just, Mm -mm. yeah. And I think it really needed that. But it was a fun episode. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the experience of watching it. So uh, with that, a great episode of Burn Notice, but just an episode of television. Thanks again to Vincent E.L. for our theme music. You can find more about him at vincentel.bandcamp.com. And until next week, bye. Wink. (laughs) He winked at me. Ah!